You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I want to talk about our sponsors, Facebook Design and Abstract. Facebook Design is a proud sponsor of Revision Path. To learn more about how the Facebook design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. This episode is also brought to you by Abstract, design workflow management for modern design teams. Spend less time searching for design files and tracking down feedback, and spend more time focusing on innovation and collaboration. Like Glitch, but for designers, Abstract is your team's version-controlled source of truth for design work. With Abstract, you can version sketch design files, present work, request reviews, collect feedback, and give developers direct access to all specs, all from one place. Sign your team up for a free 14-day trial by heading over to www.abstract.com. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with artist and UX creative director, Adrian Franks. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hey, how you doing, Maurice? Uh, My name is Adrian Franks. Currently, I'm a UX creative director at IBM interactive experiences um it's a division of ibm that mostly deal with uh creating design and digital experiences for different types of clients it's almost like an in-house agency part of the consultancy so that's just one thing i do but you know that's kind of like my bruce wayne job but my batman (laughs) job would be that you know (laughs) i'm out here in these streets design streets basically creating um experiences anything from like film posters designs and title graphics to like, you know, uh, app designs that more or less connect brown and diverse creatives to clients uh, in the form of a marketplace called Pepper. So, yeah, you know, uh, and, you know, I'm a dad. So I think that's like the biggest title to have. Right. Besides being a designer and a creative. And I'm a dad and I'm a husband. Okay. To Nicole and Garvey. It's my son's name. Nice. So I want to get more into into all of that. I first want to start off uh, just asking more about the work that you're doing at, at IBM. Can you kind of walk me through what a normal day is like for you? Oh, yeah, sure. So uh, if you think about IBM historically, it's a company that's been around 100 years, right? I mean, you know, these guys have created things such as like the social security system that we currently all use, you know, shout out to Equifax, I guess, um, <laughs> to, all the way to like some of the semiconductor chips that was used in a lot of the, um, you know, like computers that we use, you know, 10 years ago. Right. But now they're more of a software company. So these guys are really all about like pushing like cognitive, uh, different types of like AI, definitely like everything like enterprise design and different types of like digital and, and like technical services. Well, the division I'm a part of, which is part of GBS or Global Business Services, um, IX, we're more like a group of designers, UX researchers, uh, creatives and strategists and production guys who more or less help a lot of what we call the partners and the various types of GBS leads to engage a client almost in the same form as a, as an ad agency. But instead of us, like, you know approaching these guys with like a campaign that would, you know, more or less sell a product or a service. 
We're there to help more or less help a business transform from a business perspective using digital and using like strategy. So a guy like me would more or less, you know, team up with like a strategist or a UX person or maybe like another you know, like young designer. And we would more or less uh, help a partner to help a client reinvent whatever type of digital uh, transformation they're looking for. So anything from like redesigning their apps or creating like an enterprise approach uh, for some of their services or products. All the way down to like, you know, helping these guys reimagine what their business can be from a digital perspective. So, yeah, a lot of times I might be in sketch. I might be in like, you know, keynote. I might actually prototype like an example of something that can work for like a kiosk example. Like I helped redesign some of the kiosks at uh, JetBlue, uh, you know, as one of my projects. Um, so, yeah, we, we do a lot of different things that are more, you know, business oriented. And not necessarily campaign, but sometimes we may do some marketing work too, but it's mostly digital transformation using what we call design thinking and experience in design. And what attracted you to IBM? I know you said they're doing a lot of, or they've done a lot of different things in the past, but what specifically made you want to lend your talent to them? Oddly enough, um, I never imagined myself being at IBM, to be honest. You know, I went to school for advertising design, right? You know, I wanted to be an art director and creative director. So I pursued that for like, you know, obviously the first 15, 18 years of my career. But uh, a friend of mine who we more or less kind of, you know, um, you know, connected through freelance work here in, New, in the you know, tri-state area out in New Jersey. She basically took a job at IBM. And, you know, from my understanding, you know, her uh, spiel was like, well, IBM is reinvesting in bringing in more designers again. You know, they kind of stop using designers from a long time ago. Like, you know, the last time they actually had designers working with the company was like Charles and Ray Eames and Elliot Noyes and even like, you know, Paul Rand, who ironically created the logo. So that was like the last time Big Blue, you know, that's the nickname for IBM, actually used designers. But being that they're now more of a software company and less hardware, we know that design thinking and design leaders and design type talent can more or less help drive how that software is going to be used from an experience point of view. So to really make this, you know, long story pretty short, these guys really needed more uh, talent that knew how to tell stories, right? At the end of the day, they can tell a story, they can make it visual, they can give it some kind of context, they can grind it like some strategy or more or less, you know, sell an experience to a client as opposed to here's a bucket of technology that you're going to buy, but here's how to use that technology in terms of targeting a user. So that's how I ended up there because... You know, they needed more design talent. And, um, yeah, she kind of gave me an offer I couldn't refuse. And I'm like, well, I'll at least try and see what happened. And I've been there now at least five years. Nice. What's been the biggest challenge for you so far with what you're doing? I would say the biggest challenge is that, um, well, you know, IBM is a 100-year-old company, like I mentioned, right? So a lot of times they deal with other companies as more or less like them, right? So that. You know, some of the clientele would be like these big insurance companies to governmental agencies to, you know, companies that have been around a long, long time. And if you know anything about like, you know, big companies like that, you know, those guys are very slow to change. So it's trying to convince these companies that, you know, if you don't disrupt yourself, well, some smaller, nimble, more agile company is going to come right along and potentially disrupt your entire business. Now, you can do one of two things. You can either jump in front of that change or disruption. Or you can potentially acquire that company. But, you know, sometimes acquiring companies like that 
it just kind of gets swallowed up into the current company, the big company, and nothing really changes, right? So that's always not the best strategy as well. Mm -hmm. So the biggest issues that I've noticed being at uh, Big Blue is that um, it is trying to get convinced a lot of these bigger companies, you know, why they should change and how it's going to add to their bottom line, how it's going to give them like some type of return on investment and this idea that, you know, by changing a bunch of things now and investing in like new technologies and new design systems and new design practices, it's going to save you money in the long term and even sometimes the immediate short term. But, um, yeah, that's sometimes that can be a, a little challenging, especially dealing with like CMOs because you know, yeah. CMOs are just there for like a short period of time and they're on to the next job because, <laughs> you know, they want technology to work now. And yeah. sometimes it take technology a minute to just kind of, you know, work properly. Yeah. I mean, not even working properly, but also just to like get the adoption rate up, you know? Correct. Correct. You know, again, people, companies are full of people and people, are, you know, overall, people say they like change, but people really don't like change. They're, they're very <laughs> apprehensive to change, right? Yeah. And, you know, designers, we're always trying to change the way that people do or reinvent something, right? And, you know, we run up against that wall of people uh, who's adverse to what we're um, trying to create. So, yeah, you know, it's ultimately dealing with, you know, clients, uh, dealing with, you know, people who don't want to change. And I get it because... Sometimes changing something on the client end means that somebody got to lose some money. Somebody got to invest in this. And I lose money here. I don't look great. If I don't look great, maybe I get fired. And at the end of the day, people got families to take care of. So, you know, it's a it's a domino effect of a lot of things that um, we sometimes don't understand that, you know, change is more than just a client saying no to something. It can, it's, a, you know, a bunch of things that we have to consider, like other variables or whatever. So that's the bigger thing. Now, you mentioned design thinking, but... How do you generally end up approaching projects at IBM in the IX division? Is it kind of a similar process for everything? More or less, yes. You know, sometimes clients may not always buy into the idea of using design thinking as a framework to uh, change a business or assess, like, you know, how do we engage the user base or whatever. But what we try to do is adapt it so it's not so cumbersome, right? Because, you know, design thinking as a, as a framework is pretty massive. It's scalable and it's it can be pretty big, right? But I think a lot of times we we now have learned to break it apart and use the parts of design thinking specifically to solve a problem for a company at that moment. Because sometimes a company is not trying to transform themselves. They just need to solve one small problem, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe design thinking, um, well, we know that if you use per certain parts of design thinking, it can solve specific problems. Now, once you solve that problem, what usually happens is a client may realize, well, oh, being that I solved this problem, it's attached to this other problem, which is attached to two more problems, which is attached to five other problems, which now maybe we need to rethink this approach and maybe use the full gamut of like design thinking. But a lot of times you just kind of have to, you know, get the conversation going and just solve that one small problem first. Yeah. So that's how more or less how I've seen design thinking being used, um, you know, at Big Blue. And, um, you know, of course, you know, Big Blue is not like the company that invented it. Like, you know, anybody who's a, a designer, like a, a product designer or some type of, you know, industrial designer, they've been using like this, the, the methodologies of design thinking for like ever. Yeah. And uh, I know IDEO and like, I think the um, the business school at Stanford was like the, the two most recent entities that basically made design thinking kind of popular. And then, uh, you know... Um, uh, IBM more or less adapted that framework and made it its own. Mm -hmm. 
And now before IBM, you know, I know you've worked at a number of different ad agencies, either as an art director or as a creative director. You worked at Digitas Health. That is correct. World Group. Yep. Global Hue. You've done you your homework. At, at 22 Square down here in Atlanta. Yeah. I, I, w- I won't go into to each one of those, but when you look back at that agency time, like what really stands out to you during that time? Well, I could truly say with agency versus what we're calling uh, design consultancy, agency do get at the reason why people do things, right? Because at the end of the day, we're narrative-driven creatures. So agency, do a, they do a great job at telling a story. I think consultancies do a good job at trying to solve a, a business problem, right? Now, if you can have a place that can more or less do the both, then, you know, now you got what they call like a, you know, a creative unicorn. And I think what I've tried to become is that person who understands like how to tell a good story as well as how that story can solve a problem. So the things I've learned at the agency is that, you know, I've learned how to really tell a good, compelling, creative story. Right. Mm-hmm. And what I've learned at, you know, at uh, working at places like Accenture, and even like digitized and even like, you know, obviously here at IBM is that it's taking that story and putting it in the form of like, like a user story, a user story they're going to need to solve like a problem for a user, like the pain points and passion points and, you know, triggers and what things that ultimately uh, can be solved for like a user and putting it in the story uh, form is like, it's a beautiful thing. So I just think, you know, having, being in both of those worlds, I've seen, how those two methods of replying together can be a very powerful thing. Now let's switch gears here a little bit. Cause I really want to learn more about your background and certainly what, what has brought you to where you are now. Where did you grow up? I'm born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia. All right. I'm Grady baby. Grady baby. Proud All of right. it too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was, yeah. was design and art and everything kind of like a big part of your growing up? I would say being a just an artistic being was a part of a big part of my growing up, right? Like my parents, they allowed me to more or less kind of become who I am, right? Like it was my dad who kind of figured that I was kind of going to be like an artist. And it was my mom who really supported that, right? So she's the one that basically um, get me going to a lot of classes as a kid, uh, enrolled me in like a, a lot of like screen printing classes, drawing classes, you know, at like the Atlanta College of Art. That's what it used to be called before SCAD bought it. But um, yeah, my parents, man, they're, the, they're the, uh, the people I have to give the most credit to because they're the ones that allowed me to like more or less come down to, you know, take this path of being a creative and an artist at a very young age, more like the age of eight, right? Mm-hmm. So um, growing up in Atlanta, I would say that the one thing that kind of made creativity kind of sticky for me and just kind of fun was the music scene. So design as a culture i wouldn't say was big in atlanta but it was definitely present and unfortunately most of the time it was amongst people who didn't look like me it was amongst you know more people who were either you know mostly white right mm-hmm. so if you wanted to be more of a designer then you would have to kind of venture into that world but if you just want to just be a full-on just creative fluid individual well, you know, Atlanta was always a place that, you know, a lot of creative black people, just excellent black excellence type black people would just be there. Right. So yeah. I got a lot of that creativity, man, just being in the city of Atlanta. So going to things like the Malcolm X Festival as a kid, uh, checking out things in the West End, um, you know, looking at my grandparents who was entertainers. Uh, definitely checking out Funk Jazz Cafe when I was in college. Oh, man. Uh, 
Yeah, that take you back, right? <laughs> um, Chocolate Soul back in the days. Uh, you know, watching like groups like Arrested Development kind of bubbling up and watching Outkast and, you know, looking at um, what Planet, what was the name of that uh, show, that the, the, the hip hop show? Uh, American Rap Makers. You know, watching all those different things uh, as a kid, you know, it really fueled my creativity. And drawing from comic books, like that was kind of cool. But again, that's the creative side. But the design side, yeah, I kind of had to venture into, you know, uncharted waters. So, you know, going to like the Atlanta College of Art and learning screen printing and understanding who was Dieters Ram and um, Paul Rand and Milton Glaser and Louis Philly and even meeting like black designers like Charlie Palmer mm. and his wife at the time, Dorothea Taylor. You know, that was a huge influence on my life overall, you know. So um, Atlanta did give me that overall, like, genesis of being a black creative, of just being, you know, understanding that I, as a black person, could have a long career as a creative, which most of us don't even know these, you know, um, these jobs even exist or these industries even exist. We understand the entertainment side of things, but yeah. being a commercial creative or a designer or a photographer or illustrator or art director creator director whatever you want to call that like we just didn't know that that even existed and even some of my teachers in high school they couldn't even really instruct me of how to best go about that mm -hmm. so you know definitely having um opportunities to mentor with like design professionals and having some teachers in high schools who understood that you know hey maybe you can be a graphic designer that you was going to be you know making some pretty good money that helped too, you know, and definitely having the support of parents. And now I guess, you know, continuing along that thread for college, you, you went to DeKalb Tech, you went to AIU, which is American Intercontinental University. Mm -hmm. So given, I guess, the fact that Atlanta was such creative inspiration for you and then also going to these schools, do you feel like they kind of help like prep you for getting out there in the world and being a working designer? I would say definitely. Um, the, the beautiful thing about DeKalb Tech while it may have been a technical school and, you know, right next to DeKalb College in uh, Clarkston, Georgia, um, but the instructor there at the time, uh, the guy by the name of Mr. Uh, Ray Shedd, this guy, um, he was a phenomenal, like, design instructor. Like, this guy gave us more knowledge about the industry than any four-year school could have ever prepped us for. Mm -hmm. So I was there for two years, and, um, you know, I got my associates there, and then I went to AI, you know, AIU to pursue my bachelor's, but... You know, Mr. Shad, I must say those two years in his class, I learned so much about like what design could do being a designer. Right. Because it was different facets of being a designer. Like you can go the art director route. You can go pure illustration route. You can go like straight on just graphic design at the time. And even doing, you know, the moments I was in his class, those two years, like digital wasn't really called digital. It was called like, you know, web design. Right. Yeah. And that was kind of bubbling up. And uh, I had a huge interest in that. But, you know, having that foundational uh, knowledge from like a guy like Mr. Shedd, like it really, you know, opened my eyes up to like the possibilities like, oh, so I can definitely make a really good living, on, you know, working at an agency or working at a design studio or doing photo shoots. Mm -hmm. And then at some point, you know, designing things for the web or now for apps, you know, so that really did start in Atlanta. But um. I can truly say that it wasn't very uh, accessible to a lot of black people. So that's the one, you know, I guess red flag for me back then is that a lot of us just didn't know that you could make a living, you know, in this professional and be black. Right. Mm -hmm. And it was and even to this day, it can still be very hard 
getting into the uh, industry. But yeah, man, that's how I can truly say my genesis is is definitely in Atlanta. Before we were recording, you had mentioned uh, Craig Brim. And I I, I swear, I, I think he mentioned this. I, I know he mentioned Ray before, because as soon as you said his name, I was like, wait a minute, that, that name sounds really familiar. Were y'all... I, I I don't know. Were you and Craig in the same class, or like how did you? We were. Y'all were yeah, in the same class. Craig was okay. In the, he was in the same class. I was eighteen. Craig was. Oh, I know he was older than me. I know he was being you know, like twelve or fourteen years older than me. Okay. So he was, you know, he was way older. Than me. He was like a big brother for me, right? Yeah. So, but yeah, it was a huge age gap, but we learned at the exact same rate, man. Like the same things, and you know, we call ourselves Shedites. Anybody that came out of Mister Shed's class was called a Shedite, right? And that we didn't give it that name. It's like some, you know, previous uh students of Mr. Shed's um, you know, uh program what you know, coined that term. But uh, it was funny, man, because all of us uh that more or less survived that program, we all have the same like understanding of like how the world works with the when it comes to design. Mm-hmm. Mr. Shed, he actually went to Art Center uh and majored in like illustration. So, you know, this guy's from like way back then. He gotta be like late 80s at this point but um yeah yeah that guy man he he um he really really uh informed us with a lot of like rich rich knowledge and he's a guy that introduced me and um craig and a bunch of other you know black friend designers in the same course to charlie palmer he's a guy that brought charlie palmer to our uh to our course to our school okay and he talked to an entire class but he specifically wanted us to connect with charlie because he knew that being black in this industry um, it's just, it's going to be hard. And this is a white guy understanding this, that mm-hmm. being a black person in a creative industry predominantly ran by white men was not going to be easy. So having some type of, you know, mentor and advocate is just going to be idea. And he introduced us to uh, Charlie and there you go. Wow. I reached out to Charlie to come on the show. I don't know if he got back to me or not. Um, I got to double check my records about that, but I hit him up, man. You should try again. Charlie is, Charlie is the man, man. Like, I, <laughs> Hey, he's the man. He lives in Atlanta. Yeah. So more speaking about Atlanta, I know you started out your early career at Bell South. Now it's it's AT&T. You're a graphic designer there. Yeah. I mentioned before we were recording, I was at AT&T. This was like 2006 to 08. I was working in the Yellow Pages division as a graphic and web designer. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely hated it. Well, yeah, me too. Well, <laughs> I, I, well, let me, let me put this. I hated it, but when I look back, at that time, I I see how it prepped me, like for the work that I did, kind of right after that. Like I same here. Quit from that job, started my studio, was doing that sort of stuff. When you look back at that time, what do you remember? Well, look, I mean, I rephrase what I just said. I'm not gonna say I hated it, but you know, the work wasn't great. It's just yeah. real. But you know, that was a like my that was my learning ground. That was a place where I learned to like how to use Illustrator, how to use Photoshop, understand mm-hmm. trapping. And not trapping like we're talking about Migos. We're talking about actually print terms of <laughs> trapping ink from spilling over into like certain images, right? And yeah. learning how to do die cuts and learning how to do, you know, everything that was around printing back then. So I got, I, I cut my teeth at what, you know, at the time it was called BAPCO, Barisov Advertising and Publishing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for the most, I would say it did give me that foundational knowledge of like how being a uh, design profession or a creative profession would play out. Because, you know, ultimately you start out doing production work. Like, you know, you got to knock out 15 uh, in-column oh ads every day, right? Don't say that. You had that quota you had to meet, right? And you had You're to, giving me bad memories now oh, yeah. about the and quota system. I'm oh sure my you God. probably remember all the UDACs, like the, the actual. Oh, yeah, you forgot yes. that term, right? 
Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, see, we we sound like old men at this point because nobody know what a UDAC is. I can't even remember the acronym. It's like Universal Design something whatever. But you know, it's the sizes of the ads that you would see in the yellow pages. So we used to have to know all the different UDAC sizes and what that means. Yeah. But it's funny those same like things that we would do in the yellow pages. I applied that same knowledge to building banner ads when I started working at. You know, uh, these different ad agencies, whether it's going to be 22 Squared or or even like, you know, um, Global Hue mm -hmm. or even like, you know, Digitize or whatever. So that same knowledge of doing yellow page ads, well, it was the same. I applied all that knowledge to doing banner ads. Yeah. It's the same yeah. thing. It just had motion to it. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I appreciate the knowledge and all the, the learnings from the, the various people at Bell South Advertising and Publishing. Who taught me a lot of things. So, you know, I would shout out everybody, but that's a lot of people. But um, <laughs> the one guy I got to shout out, though, he still lives in Atlanta to this day. Uh, one day, hopefully, he'll listen to this podcast and get start blushing. This guy by the name of Jerry Toronto, he's a native New Yorker. He's from, I think he's from Queens, but uh, he moved to the South, like I think, fresh out of college and worked at Babco the same time I did. And this guy gave me so much knowledge and encouragement. To stay in the game. He's the first guy to even told me, like, look, don't ever tell anybody you don't know how to do anything. Go buy a book, figure it out, right? I guess that's that New York hustle he had in him. Mm -hmm. And he passed it on to me, man. And to this day, I, I just feel like that guy was just like like crucial to my development as a young, a young lad, right? So um yeah, yeah and uh shout out to Jerry Toronto, man. I love you. Yeah, the one thing I remember, I mean, well, I remember a lot of stuff back during that time, but I'd say the thing that probably ret I retain the most is my speed. Yeah. So, like, you know, like you say, like, you had the quota system. We had, uh, for people that are listening, they probably have heard this story before, but we had this, like, point system where certain banners were, like, the the longer XNEGs were, like, a .5 value or tile ads were a point nine, but then if you moved up to doing web pages, web pages, a one page website was three points, a three page was five, mm -hmm. and then a five or more page was like 10 points or whatever. And so they'd have this quota system. They actually had this wall. Uh, when I was there, they had this big, like floor to ceiling wall with everyone's name on it. And all of your titles were updating like automatically. Oh, really? As you did stuff and it went through QA. So anybody on any team at any time could look and see exactly where you were in the pecking order. Wow. <laughs> like, Man, that's big brother. We didn't have all that. Right. <laughs> we had the wall so of shame. Get, so, <laughs> oh, man. So we get there in the morning. You'd get your pack. Like, so all the websites came in like physical paper packets for some reason. Mm -hmm. You get the packet. Yeah, because they were still printing things out. Yeah, we pull the packet. We go through and look through and see all the text we have to have and colors and all that stuff. And like by the end of the day, that website had to be done. Like it had to be finished, ready yeah. to go to QA so you could move on to the next thing. And what I hated about it was they kept increasing the quota and decreasing the point value. Mm. So you had to keep churning out more and more. I think we were always at least six months behind what was in the queue. So we, and this is a team of like 30 people. Wow. So we're having to keep continuing to do more work, more work, more work 
quota increases, point values decrease. But like it got my speed up to where now if I, I know exactly what I need to do when I open Photoshop to True. make a, a banner True. or make a or make anything. I can just be like, okay, boom, I gotta do this, 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 done. True. I can do it. Yeah. Same I can set here. up the artboards, I can make it happen, export it out, done. Similar way with coding. I had made my first CSS framework there because we were, this was at the time when we were transitioning from tables to CSS, which is a whole other issue. But we were transitioning over to CSS layouts and I made my first framework, shared it with the team. And so that's how I was able to crank out more sites because I could just get the framework, change a few Mm. variables, boom, 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 make the graphics in Photoshop, add the text, be done. Uh, so it got my speed up. And certainly by the time when I started my agency or started my studio, I should say, I was like, okay, AT&T taught me a little something. But when you're in the thick of it, oh, it's it's terrible. I hated it. <laughs> it is terrible. I was working 12-hour <laughs> shifts. I hated it. And, and that's why I left, you know, Bell South is because I wanted to get into the, you know, the web, right? And yeah. And we didn't have, they had a small group that was designing web pages for those guys. But um. I couldn't get into the group. So I'm like, well, I'm going to leave. And, I, you know, I stayed up for five years initially. But uh, I left Bell South to go work for a dot com called Outweb. And um, to your point, all the things you just mentioned in terms of Cascade style sheets and design with tables and whatever, you know, this is obviously long before any kind of responsive web was even thought of. Yeah. Um, you know, we were still doing things in Dreamweaver, right? And chopping things up manually in Photoshop. Oh, we, we were doing that. Yeah. We were doing that. Lots of slices and yeah. leaving notes. So if another designer picked it up, <laughs> they could they could go right from where you stopped. All yeah, that man. Stuff. Those Woo. the days, bro. <laughs> Told you we signed two old Those men. Those were the days. The yeah. <laughs> design uncle. <laughs> and so like you, you also held down work, you know, at agencies in Atlanta, like I mentioned, 22 squared, you... Uh, did some work mm-hmm. with Shock Theory. You've done some work with Courtney Counts over at GTM. Yeah, I love Courtney. Uh, yeah. GTM, yeah. Yeah, I, I used to love that. I love GTM, man, when those guys was around. They were just cool dudes, yeah. man. Um, yeah, Courtney, um, Kimbo, Carl, Darius, Sean. Like, I knew all those guys, man. Those guys was, I just love, GTM was really, really cool. Yeah, it really was. I, yeah. Now it's like a juice shop, I think. Yeah, they, yeah, something they, they like disbanded that. it. They broke it up, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean they they had a good run though. Those guys, they were like you know, around for like what, like fifteen years, something. Fifteen like that? years, yeah, that's a yeah. long time to be an independent design, well, independent marketing agency firm working on accounts like Truth and you know doing stuff from like Mountain Dew. Like they, those guys were innovative, man. They also um, they did more than just you know marketing and PR. They also held events. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they would do a concert. They would do... They did, like, a lot of guerrilla marketing stuff, too. Like, guerrilla marketing. Yeah. Uh, they invested in, like, you know, apparel line with Wheat Bread Life with uh, Fuse Green. Okay. Some of the earliest shirts uh, Dave Chappelle wore on the uh, Chappelle show. So, now, those guys, man, it's fun. I just feel like, you know, what's going on with agencies right now, They are those guys was already doing that back then. It was just... Mm-hmm. It was being mm-hmm. more than just an ad agency. These guys was driving lifestyle. Yeah. You know, in multiple avenues. Um, but, you know, sometimes you can be ahead of your time and sometimes you can just be behind. You know, it's just very rare that people can be just right on time. Right. That timing is yeah. really, really, really deep. But even the work I worked on with those guys and created for it was very cool work, man. And even now, you know, you're in NYC, you're in Brooklyn. Like, what is it like there now for you as a designer and how is it different from when you were in Atlanta? Well, you know, I've been in New York now 11 years, and I can truthfully say that, you know, while Atlanta created me, I did I did get a chance to learn a lot of about, you know, 
agencies here in New York, right? Like, you know, I mean, before I came to New York, I worked at Bernard Holders and even 22 Square. So that was definitely, you know, major ad agencies. But to see, you know, what the, the ad, like, culture or advertising culture started, the genesis here in New York, to work and thrive in the agency here, it is a different kind of experience. But I would say that uh, the things that I learned here is that New York is the place where, like, it won't get in the way of what you want to do. It's like, all right, cool. You want to be this? Go right ahead. We're not going to stop you. But unless you dope, we're not actually going to pay you no attention either. So being here, you're going to run across a lot of different types of people. So you're going to run across a lot of like really good, talented people and really bullshit creatives. And sometimes you can't tell the difference between the two. Right. Because <laughs> it's New York. Everybody's here is getting it, grinding, getting their hustle on. Right. Um, and, you know, and they're a little bit more guarded, you know, when it comes down to like. Um, you know, engaging like a creative team, right? It's very tribal in most instances. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I've learned that, you know, uh, being a creative here, if you cut your teeth pretty quickly, you know, you're definitely going to understand how things work fairly quickly because things move quick. Sometimes the turnaround can be very harsh, you know. they, You know, sometimes, uh, and in most cases, the agency, if they lose an account here, like certain groups of people in the creative department are just gone, like, they was here today and they're gone literally by the end of the day because yeah. they got word that they lost an account, right? So, you know, things just change quickly here, man. Um, the one thing I, I was kind of shocked, though, is how far behind New York agency world world is when it comes down to, like, technology. Like, I feel like New York agencies are really just kind of catching up because of, it, you know, it's weird. You know, if you start looking at New York agencies, almost like hip-hop, right? Like, hip-hop started here advertising started here mm-hmm. hip-hop uh went somewhere else and became something different advertising did the same thing and went to minnesota and became fallon went out to la and became tbwa shy day it went to boston and became mullet no it, you know it, it became something different in different parts of the country right yeah but by it actually moving to different parts of the country it had to innovate and i feel like a lot of new york agencies more or less um, state more or less the same because of this legacy mentality, kind of like hip hop, right? Like mm. hip hop didn't really evolve in New York until maybe like if you start thinking about like Dame Dash and, and uh, Hove doing their thing with, um you know, Rock Nation, I mean, Rock Rockefeller Records or even what Diddy was doing in the late 90s, right? But for the most, hip hop in New York was more or less the boom bop, right? And I feel like now hip hop is inspired by a lot of Southern rap. So the same thing with agencies it's being inspired by a lot of other agencies that are not historically from New York. So, yeah, I'm just kind of surprised how far behind a lot of the cultural agencies here or even just the general market agencies were kind of lagging behind. It was still in the traditional manner of producing campaigns as TV, print and radio. And now they're really trying to incubate technology and look at design thinking and, and incorporate that into their workflows and looking how to create product as opposed to just, you know, selling products for other clients or really becoming more like a lifestyle agency as opposed to just, you know, old school Madison Ave agency. So that's the one thing I've noticed here these last 11 years, how, you know, things have changed drastically these last five years. But initially, yeah, uh, advertising here was still pretty far behind, in my opinion. Wow. You know, it was very late to adapt to the web. Yeah. When did you start doing design work with Spike Lee? 
Oh, wow. So that's a good question. It's what, 2019? Ironically, um, a month before I started working at IBM. Okay. That's a weird thing, right? Like, you know, I, I just see these things in my life sometimes that just kind of happen out of the blue. And it's always like happening in like twos or threes, like like two big, two or three major things happen all at one time. So me taking a job at IBM, you know, I started doing some things with Spike. Unfortunately, it's because of some things I posted on Instagram due to the untimely death of Eric Garner. I put up this image of his um, prom picture, what seemed to be his prom picture. Mm-hmm. And I gave it this posterized, almost like Cuban propaganda poster look Yeah, to kind of remind people that, hey, this is a human being, right? So the goal was to more or less react to what was going on in the world in a digital manner. So normally I would want to paint something and like kind of create like a handcrafted piece. But unfortunately with technology, you know, especially in social media, things move really, really quick. Yeah. So I found an image of uh, Eric. I gave it like this really cool posterized treatment uh, with his foreground being in black, the background being in blue and the lettering is like in yellow and white. And those are the colors of the NYPD, um, you know, New York Police Department here. Right. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of created this this graphic that basically said I can't breathe. Just really, you know, um, just reminding people of who this person is and what happened. So long story short, I posted it online, you know, literally the day that I found out what happened with Eric Garner on YouTube, which was kind of weird to see somebody die online. Right. Posted it online. Uh, and, you know, occasionally I just be tagging people, you know, because you tag people, you really don't pay any attention. Like, they never respond. I, I mean, I got like what at the time, 500 followers. I don't really trip about that, but that's what it was. Mm-hmm. So long story short, maybe like a day or two later, I get this weird reply from spike lee like i'm like hold up this is real spike lee he asked me hey uh this is spike like i don't know who he is um (laughs) (laughs) could i repost this on my instagram i'm like sure i'm gonna tell him no and um he he sure he took damage he reposted it and that kind of began our relationship of doing work together he wanted me he found out i was from atlanta and then we just started creating like you know a bunch of cool imagery Unfortunately, around like, you know, Tamir Rice, yeah. um, Mike Brown, you know, Isaiah Ford and, you know, a bunch of other, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people who was killed at the hand of like police brutality. Um, yeah, that kind of began that whole little series that I call Suspicious Prisms. And um, that we basically took a lot of those posterized looking treated imagery and created like a memorial at 40 Acres. And then that turned into us just doing other work together so you know working on the stuff for Chirac or even working on you know movie posters for um Michael Jackson and even his block parties yeah I just more or less now I've been rocking with him for five years because of the one thing that happened on Instagram yeah and I've seen like the other ones that you have in the series I, I know the there's Eric Garner when you spoke about there's one with Michael Brown there's one with uh, John Crawford. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, uh, and I mentioned this again before we were recording, uh, the last time I was in New York in May, uh, me and a friend had went to, uh, the restaurant that's right next to 40 Acres. Yeah, M- That's when I first saw the piece, Mullane's. That was when I first saw it and was like, wait a minute, I know that image from somewhere. So yeah, you even worked on a, on a custom, uh, moleskin with Spike, right? Yeah. Yeah, man. I told you we get, it just, you know, Spike would just hit me up randomly via text message. Like he'd just call <laughs> and he'd be like, yo, I got this idea. I want to do a Moleskine. I'm like, okay. <laughs> he like, 
so can you design a moleskin? I'm like, well, you know, just going back what Jerry told me, like, yeah, I can design a moleskin. I just got to get the specs. But yes, yeah, designing a moleskin is like designing a book. So it's not yeah super hard. So yeah, he, yeah. But, um, long story short, uh, with that project, uh, Spike was coming up on the 30th anniversary of She's Gotta Have It. And this is back in 2016 because uh, the movie came out in 86. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, he wanted to design a moleskin that celebrated the movie, but it also paid homage to his mom. That's why you probably noticed that the moleskin is in Fuchsia, uh, a.k.a. pink, right? Because that was his mom's favorite color. Okay, okay. Yeah, so, you know, when that movie came out, you know, you know, his mom had, you know, passed away 10 years prior to that. So, I don't know fully why he wanted to make it pink, but obviously it was in, you know, memory, in remembrance of his mom. Mm-hmm. But, um... The goal of that moleskin was to um, kind of remind people of, well, this is Spike. This is, and if you ever open it up, that's why I say you should take it out of the plastic. Yeah. <laughs> you see all his, um, all the different movies that he produced, he has it as like a credit inside of the uh, moleskin. It's almost like a, a end credit. That's how we want to treat the moleskin. Like, you know, when you open it up, you see this beautiful image of Nola, you see Mars, those are the two iconic, you know, characters mm-hmm. from the film. And then you get like the credits of all the people who have make the film and what he called his uh, his jointography, right? Which is all the different films at the time that he had, you know, basically created. But also you get like some stickers of Mars and Nola and the please, please baby, please phrase. So it's kind of cool, right? Okay. As well as this is this is where it gets kind of funny. So Moleskin wanted to do it because you know they're fans of his work. The company is has a headquarters in New York, so some of those reps came to Forty Acres. We walked those guys through a couple of different ideas and they basically connected us with their um, production team over in Italy. Right. Because this company is based out of Italy. Yeah. So talking with those guys, they said, yeah, so we've never put the, a face of a human on our moleskins, like an actual person. Mm-hmm. So what was kind of dope about that is that that particular project I saw that the first time of a human being being like the face on a moleskin. And it just so happened to be the face of a black woman. Wow. So I thought that was kind of dope, right? That's really dope. So, yeah, it is. It's actually kind of cool. So it it turned into more than just a notebook uh, or a moleskin, but it turned into like a really cool design piece that, that almost kind of creates its own history onto itself. It complements the film very well. And um, it is a moment in time. So uh, that was a you know pretty fun project. Yeah. I, as Adrian mentioned, I have the notebook. It's still in the plastic because when it came out, it was like, oh, it's a limited edition. I was like, let me go ahead and get it as like a collector's item because I don't know how much longer it'll be on sale. I don't know what the demand will be like. Let me just get one. So I have it. So I do have it. I just haven't actually used it. But to know that all those little tidbits are in there, stickers and, you know, the joinography and all that stuff. I'm going to open it up. I'm going to check it out. You should check it out. And next time you're in town, maybe I'll take you about 40 acres, you get it signed. Oh, okay. Hey. Because it should be numbered. I think yours is numbered, right? Yeah, I think it's numbered. Yeah. Yeah. The first couple of thousand. I think they ran like 5,000, but I think the first two or 3,000 were numbered. So if you're in town, you should just bring it. You're going to get it signed. Okay. So that'll make it better, right? That's why you got open. <laughs> <laughs> got it. Got it. Do you know if there's plans to do like any more of these in, in Spike's film series? I'm sure. Uh, I guess... It, because, you know, I guess the 30 year is like a milestone for almost anything in life, right? Yeah. I remember turning 30 and that was kind of fun. But I guess, um, I don't know what's the next film that's coming up on his 30th. Um, because I know 86, he did She's Gotta Have It. 87 would mean School Days is coming up. I, would, I, would, I would pay top dollar 
for a school day's moleskin. I I definitely would. Oh my god. That'll be dope, but that's already happened. The 30th anniversary has already happened, though, right? Because I think, I think that so. came in yeah. 88. Um, so it seems that the next 30th Spike joint that may be coming up is either going to be probably Mobetta Blues, and then at some point you're going to hit Malcolm X. So I'm thinking he's waiting for like his big film yeah. to do that. Maybe. I don't know. So and, and, you know, here's the thing. I can tell you what Spike is thinking because only Spike <laughs> can tell you that, right? Because, yeah. you know, he's... Just one of those brainiac kind of people. I think the next one that come that's coming up would probably be Mo Better Blues. Oh yeah, Mo Better Blues is great. Because I remember, I, I remember about Do the Right Thing 30th anniversary uh, happened this year, like in May or June or something. Because there was a block party mm-hmm. uh, about it. Yeah. So I think Mo Better Blues is the next one coming up. Because Spike has put out a movie like every year in the nineties. Yeah, he was. A- for a while, he was on a roll between the late nineties, late eighties, going into the nineties. He was every year, man. That guy was cranking him out. Yep, he had a new movie every year. It was Mo Better Blues, Jungle Fever, Malcolm X. Uh, when did Crickland? Crickland was out in ninety four. I remember that. Crickland was out in ninety four. Yeah, that's a great film. Uh, great film. The Clockers, Girl Six. I like Clockers. Which Girl Six is really underrated. I think it's because of, it is. I think it's well. One, I love the Prince soundtrack, but that's a really underrated like spike joint it's girl six uh get on the bus too i really enjoy get on the yeah. bus both of those came out in 96 that was great four little girls get on the bus he did was the documentary huh get on the bus was excellent man yeah he did he got game in 98 summer sam was 99 yeah he was cranking them out bamboozled was 2000 wow man yeah he put them out man look if i mean you know i know <laughs> i know some people want to kind of critique him on some of his latest work yeah 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 but hey man you know he's giving the culture a lot so for that we got to be grateful i mean without him right you probably wouldn't have you know cosby copying him from school days creating a different world that's true which, that's in, true. which indirectly allowed a lot of us to more or less be influenced to go to school mm-hmm. you know and and Spike Spike went to Morehouse. I went to Morehouse, so I can't say anything bad. It's in oh, the, you're Morehouse, man. Yeah, it's in the it's in the code. I can't I can't speak <laughs> ill against. Spike. I can give a side eye. I can't say can't say anything bad about Spike. That's that's against the code. So you guys are like a little <laughs> secret society out there. You just don't know who went to Morehouse until they say it, and then when they say it, you just know it, right? That's true. That's very true. I've certainly gotten uh, I've gotten access to places that I know I shouldn't have gotten access to just by. Ending up finding out, oh, you went to Morehouse too? It's like, yeah, class of class of 03. They're like, oh, it's class of 01 or whatever. So it just, you never know. It works. You never know. <laughs> it works, brother. So when you look at kind of the design field today, and of course you're working not only, you know, in corporate America with what you're doing with IBM, but also just even this like grassroots, I don't want to call it protest art, but like even like the art that you're doing, like with Spike and everything, what do you think is like, the most important skill that a designer needs to have these days. It doesn't necessarily have to be like a technical skill or anything, but mm-hmm. when you really think across both of those, like that's a big range. Mm-hmm. What, what skill do you think a designer needs to possess? I would say on a fundamental level, just understanding, you know, basic layout and grids, right? If you just want to say just pure fundamentals, right? Outside of that, I would say work ethic because there are a lot of very talented people who just never show up. Right. Like, mm-hmm. You know, they're good. Like they can be like the best designer, best photographer, best producer. It doesn't matter. Whatever creative that may be, they can be like top notch, just naturally talent. But being just talented is just not enough. Right. You just can't just rely on that because 
regardless of your talent, the one thing clients will not tolerate is tardiness of like work because they're spending money. Mm-hmm. And when somebody's spending money, you know, they want things to be on time or they want an explanation of why something is not going to ship when you say it was not going to ship. Right. But just outright, just not having a work ethic. I just don't think that's going to work, man, because, um, you know, you know, thinking about like the design field now, there are a lot of different types of um, groups of people entering, right? And it's pretty diverse than it's ever been because, uh, you know, technically for like the last, okay, just say 100 years, if you want to look at it like that, it's predominantly been a white male driven, you know, field. Yeah. But now that there's more and more people moving into it, you know, it's def- definitely more black people and a lot of people from like the Far East mm-hmm. are moving into it. Definitely, if you're talking about people from Korea, people from China, def- people from Japan, like, you know, these guys are coming into the field and they're, what they're bringing is a work ethic that most Americans don't have. Yep. Right. Because, you know, these guys are just taught to like culturally get things done or do things better than what you possibly can do. Mm-hmm. Like, go way beyond like, you know, your own capabilities, like, like really stretch yourself because they're not just representing themselves. They're representing the whole country. And mm-hmm. in some cases, like, you know, places like SVA, they're sending places like Korea is sending kids to SVA to learn everything they can from the School of Visual Arts and bring that knowledge back to the country. Yep. Right. And they're paying for that. Mm-hmm. So you got us coming into this field competing against that. Right. So you competing against, uh, you know, individuals who have been sponsored by entire countries and whose work ethic is like, no, there's no failure. You got to get it done. That's just the way it got to be. And you're probably dealing with a bunch of talented people. So yeah, I just feel like, you know, having a work ethic is vitally important, man. You know, if you got to stay up late to get something done or get up early or, you know, get, do whatever it takes to get the job done. Sometimes you got to cheat. It just is what it is. Yeah. But as long as you get the job done, I don't consider that cheating. It's called, I got the job done, Mm -hmm. you know? So yeah, work ethic is real, man. And you know, it's different from one person to the next. Everybody have different modes of operation, different ways of working, you know? Yeah. But definitely having that work ethic, I feel like any designer nowadays have to have that because, and I say this, right? Because, some of our design talent or design skill sets, let's just be real, it's going to get automated. Mm-hmm. And a machine is going to be able to design apps in a few minutes. It just is. It, I mean, because apps are just patterns, right? Some, they even got like, you know, AI that can actually take good photography or create really beautiful photography literally out of pixels of a person who don't even exist. Yeah. So deep fakes. Yeah. Yeah, man. So um, you got this AI thing that's, not just automating just taxi drivers and like people delivering whatever with drones or whatever, but this this the sense of automation is coming to the creative field as well. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like having a great compelling idea is not going to be enough. You're going to have to have a work ethic that basically show people that you can, you know, you bring value. Yeah. I mean, even it's funny you mentioned that about the AI, like they've even been putting little drips and drabs of it in Photoshop. Yeah. Like Photoshop has this uh, content aware fill. I've used that so many times. It basically will like, say you've got an image that you want to put on a, like a a long landscape kind of thing. If the image takes up maybe, I don't know, 70% of that, you can inverse select the other 30 and do content aware fill. And Photoshop will look at the pixels in the main image 
and fill in the rest. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it is seamless. Like if you use a, uh, like a single color, it can be seamless. Yeah. I've seen it like continue brick walls, branch out trees. It's yeah. astonishing. It's astonishing, bro. Yeah. I mean, you had these. You used to have to like use like the the magic lasso tube. Oh to get god, that, right? <laughs> clone stamp, all that stuff. Yeah, right. yeah. Or a pen tube, right? To like really get detailed. Now it's like a couple of gestural swipes, and boom, you got all of that. Yep. So yeah, I just think you know AI is real and it's here. I do think this though about AI, right? Like everybody's talking about AI with like these jobs, but if it does automate, if AI becomes a problem when it comes to automation, I think the one thing that's going to curve it is well when you kill a job that means you're killing a taxpayer Mm. so i think municipalities may get involved with it because you know while a company may automate a lot of their workforce and this is nothing new automation was around even during the industrial age but if you automate a full factory or in the case of like some of these white collar jobs or whatever job that is like even at mcdonald's you know that's one person now not paying taxes Mm. and when you don't pay taxes to your local municipalities Schools can't get funded. Your roads can't get built. Bridges can't get repaired. You can't employ, you know, firemen or policemen or whomever or, you know, EMS. So that I just feel like society is going to check a whole lot of this automation because at the end of the day, people still got to live and people still got to provide and and cities got to make money. You can't make money off a bot unless the company pay for that. (laughs) What do you think kind of helps fuel your ambitions? As a 42-year-old man, I would say at this point, what's fueling my current ambitions is my son. You know, I I think he's giving me a whole nother reason to just be on this planet, right? Like, you know, I love living, but that's a really good motivating uh, reason to, like, want to stay healthy, want to see him graduate, see him go on to become a father himself. Mm -hmm. Or Mm -hmm. if he don't want to become a father, just thrive as a human being, right? Like, yeah. You know, whatever he decided he want to become, like, whoever he want to love, whoever he want to, whatever he want to be in life, I don't care. Like, I'm just going to be there. I just want to see him be him, right? And, you know, I know for me, that's like my newest um, motivator, right? So just, you know, want to make a better future for kids like him. Hopefully, you know, using design, maybe we can solve some problems, right? I don't know if we can solve racism but maybe we can solve systemic racism Mm -hmm. right or maybe we can solve a lot of things around creating jobs for you know these kids because certain jobs probably won't be there by the time they're my age right or just of age yeah so yeah man that's um that's my motivating thing now it's like helping the future for younger generations that's it you know it used to be like yeah i want to get all the awards i want to do these dope campaigns and build these apps. Like, you know, that stuff is cool, but, you know, that's not legacy, right? Like, that's cool, but it's it's not really going to impact society, in my opinion. So I feel like, you know, using my um, talent to, like, make a better future for young people mm-hmm. and definitely young designers, I think that's, like, my next my next venture, my next adventure, you know, as a creative. That reminds me of uh, an interview I did. I think this was, like, near the end of... 2017 or so but it was with john jennings uh who's a author illustrator he did the um he did the graphic novel of kindred from octavia butler okay um and i think he also is doing it now currently for parable of the sower Mm. but he is a new dad as well and he talked about it as like 
embarking on the most important design project he's ever been a part of. Yeah. Like, how do you design an experience for a human being? It's like the system of decisions that, you know, the way that he talked about it just like blew my mind. But yeah, it's true. Because, you know, how do you. Okay, in case in point, right? Like if how do you educate a young black child in 2019 post Obama era? Mm. Right? Cuz you don't want them learning everything from like the indoctrinations that we had to deal with like taking up, you know, pledging allegiance to using, you know, like pledge allegiance or saying the national anthem that never had you in mind all the way to like you learn about Columbus. Like why did we have to learn about Christopher Columbus? That even that knowledge to this day didn't I don't use it for anything. <laughs> so why are we teaching our kids unuseful knowledge, especially knowledge that basically demeans them, right? You know, why did we have to learn about George Washington, who was supposedly the father of this country, who turns out who had slaves? Like why do my son have to learn that? Why do we have to continuously learn about an oppressive system that's that was never created for him? Right? And I just feel like it's old history that's outdated and antiquated, even for even white people, in my opinion. So let alone for like brown people, because we don't use none of that stuff mm-hmm. for our day-to-day jobs. We only use it for some weird national sense of pride, right? And uh, this this sense of patriotism. So, which I think is is relative, because you know, while I don't even want to get too deep, but you know, <laughs> our people have built this country, so I feel like the original patriots are us, and you know, Native Americans. Yeah. But um. With knowing all this stuff and understanding like where we've come from, where do we go? How do we now start educating our kids to be competitive in the world and not just here in America and not being so indoctrinated by false history? Because all that history stuff we learned in high school was, you know, it's bullshit. You know, teach me more about how to, you know, balance my checkbook. Teach my kid more how to compete in the corporate world, or the non-corporate world, or how to go out and create a job or how to have use your hands to build something like teach them more of that mm-hmm. than all this, you know, what I call propaganda knowledge. Cause all this stuff that we was mostly taught in school was basically indoctrinating us to just be great citizens and not rebel. Yeah. Yeah. So I got to figure out how I'm going to teach my son to navigate the world with knowledge that I think is useful. Yet I got to inspire him with cool things that are fun to learn about too. So I don't know what that is. I don't know what that system is going to be, but it'll come to me. What does success look like for you right now? So is that like a short-term answer or a long-term? Any way you want to take it. I would say success in the short-term is setting myself up for the long-term, right? Okay. So acquiring some more property or acquiring some property here in the Northeast and uh, maybe setting up some type of, you know, center or creative outlet to kind of teach design to, you know, younger generations or you know, people who need to learn it from the community, right? And um, more or less setting up some of my other, like, creative outlets and ideas and helping those things to, you know, better um, run and be successful. I won't talk about them now, but, you know, like I said, one of them is is a marketplace to help brown creators sell their work to buyers. And those buyers could be anybody at an agency, a uh, film house, or a production house, right? So it's helping black creatives or brown creatives or just diverse creatives sell their work to the right people, you know? So I feel like that would be success for me. And, you know, obviously anything around, you know, making sure that everything is good, you know, for, for Garvey, mm-hmm. that's it, man. That's all I can ask for. I've done a lot. So I figured, you know, I'm, I'm not asking for nothing else superficial. I'm asking for like really specific things that, you know, that builds around legacy building. Yeah. 
Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and your work and everything online? You can check me out at my website at adrianfranks.com. That links to all my social channels. Here lately, I've mostly only been on Instagram and I'm thinking about going back to Twitter because I kind of don't really do Facebook anymore. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, you can check me out on Instagram at uh, afranks, the number three, at afranks, the number three. And um. You know, I post a lot of stuff on Insta stories and occasionally post a lot of things, some things via just regular postings. Um, so, yeah, man, I typically don't do a, a lot of over posting. I just try to post things that are meaningful. And, you know, I mostly uh, try to post things that make sense as opposed to just being a habitual, you know, posting of just memes and stuff like that. Like, you know, I just try to keep it pretty curated. So that's where I'm at, man. You know? Yeah. All right. Design oh, also, Uncle Adrian oh, Frank. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, hey, Uncle Adrian Frank. Yeah, I am uncle. A design uncle, right? Also, um, you know, I'm, I appreciate you bringing me to your podcast, but I also do a podcast with three other guys uh, called Ad Bros. So you can check that out, too. At, okay. Um, yeah, on uh, Apple Podcasts. Uh, we're going to probably bring it to Spotify at some point and definitely on SoundCloud. So it's called Ad Bros. We've been doing it now for about two years. Got roughly about 30 episodes. It's nice. It's fun. It's more therapy for us, right? It's like me, like four of the guys, and we all used to work at an agency together. And, um, you know, three of us were creatives. Um, two of us are like media guys, and one is like a, a producer. But yeah, it's kind of like we're an agency of dudes doing a podcast. So it's, it's pretty fun. It's called Ad Bros. Nice. I'll definitely make sure we put links to all that uh, in the description. But Man, Adrian Franks, thank you so much for coming on the show for, I mean, one, sharing your your work that you're doing at IBM, but also just sharing your story about being inspired, growing up as a designer, working throughout the world. I mean, I think that people that listen to this will get a lot of inspiration from it. And mm. certainly, I, I mean, I want to see what you're going to be doing in the next five years, because I feel like it's going to be something that really ends up changing and impacting the culture just as you've done right now with the work you've done with Spike and even some of your other work, but I I'm really curious to see what comes next. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Hey man, uh, I appreciate you Maurice for bringing me on and um honored to be here. And it's, uh, it's been fun. I appreciate it. Let's, let's connect when you're in town for sure. And whenever I'm back in Atlanta. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right, bro. Thoughts of love are in and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Adrian Franks and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Adrian and his work through the links in the show notes at glitch.com forward slash revision path. And of course, thanks to both Facebook design and abstract. Facebook design is a proud sponsor of revision path to learn more about how the Facebook design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale. Please visit facebook.design. This episode is also brought to you by Abstract, design workflow management for modern design teams. Spend less time searching for design files and tracking down feedback, and spend more time focusing on innovation and collaboration. Like Glitch but for designers, Abstract is your team's version-controlled source of truth for design work. With Abstract, you can version sketch design files, present work, request reviews, collect feedback, and give developers direct access to all specs, all from one place. Sign your team up for a free 14-day trial today by heading over to www.abstract.com. 
Revision Path is a Glitch Media Network podcast and is produced by Maurice Cherry and edited by Brittany Brown. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. We're also powered by Simplecast, the easiest way for podcasters to publish and distribute audio on the internet. Make sure you check the show notes for a link to sign up for a 14-day free trial. And if you liked this episode, then please let more people know about it by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It's really simple. It takes about a minute or so to do, and it really helps spread the word about Revision Path everywhere. You can also find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud. We're also now on Pandora. So if you have the Pandora mobile app, you can search for Revision Path and find us there. Pretty much wherever you can find your favorite shows, you'll find Revision Path. Also, make sure you're following us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for Revision Path. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.